This morning we're going to continue to talk a little bit about heaven, and uh, we've been looking at heaven the last couple of weeks, and um, we saw what heaven is, that it's a place, it's a um, place beyond all of our heavens, the atmospheric heaven, the planetary heaven, and it's a divine heaven beyond all that. And uh, it's also a domain, it's a place where God rules, lives. Um, we notice that our direction for, for heaven, according to the scriptures, was up, because it always says the Lord looks down and we look up to heaven. And it's also a very long ways away, but it's also a place that we will be there in the twinkle. That's not a blink, that's just the time it takes for light to reflect off your pupil. Um, you'll be there in a twinkle of an eye when you either pass from this life or the Lord comes back. But, um, and that's all from information from the Apostle Paul, what heaven is. It's a place, it's a domain. We also looked a little bit about what heaven is like, what, what it will be like. And uh, we understood that there's a uh, throne there. Uh, we understand who occupies heaven. It's God, the holy angels, and those who put their faith or trust in Christ, who love God, the saints. Um, there's no in-between place. It's either heaven or hell. And we went over that last week. There's no purgatory, as some teach. There's no holding tank. Uh, the Bible says to be absent from the body. If you know Christ, is to be present with the Lord. And there's that throne in heaven we saw in Revelation 4. There's also a temple in heaven. And uh, that temple actually becomes uh, God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is the temple. Um, and we looked at that last week a little bit. But today I want to talk about what we will be like when we get to heaven. Um, the Bible teaches that believers will experience this e- eternal perfection of the whole person. In other words, we'll be perfect in heaven, body, soul, spirit, everything. The whole enchilada will be absolutely perfect. No faults, no, no failures in our system. Heaven is a perfect place for people who have been made perfect, the Bible says. That's the purpose of salvation, is to make us perfect. That doesn't mean as soon as we get saved, we're perfect, right? It takes a little while. That's the process of what? Sanctification is what we call it. Remember, we're, we're, we're saved from the power of sin and will eventually be saved from the presence of sin. And we have been saved from the penalty of sin. So it's a, it's a process, our salvation. That's why the Bible says to work out your salvation. Make sure that it's true. It's not something that just happens in a single point of time, practically speaking. As soon as you're saved, you're not perfect. There's some people that teach that. There's some people that teach that Christians can receive, uh, can, can uh, attain perfection here in this life. I've actually heard, heard Christians say, oh, I don't have a problem with sin anymore. <laughs> not at all? Oh, no. That's, you know, when I was new in the faith, but now I've perfected all that. I'm perfect in Christ. So you're telling me you're not tempted at all? Oh, no. I, the power of the Spirit, you know, and they go on and on. And it's like, come on. You know, that, that's not what the Bible says. But heaven is a place for people who have been perfected, not by our own means, but by God's, so we can dwell in God's presence forever. That's the ultimate expression of our salvation, if you think about it, is perfection. And that's what we're working toward. 
And the new birth, when we come to Christ, when we turn from our sin and we turn to the Savior and we say, Lord, save me. I acknowledge you as Savior and Lord. That new birth begins the process of transforming us on the inside. And we want to look at this new person just briefly in way of introduction. When someone puts their faith, their trust in Christ, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that he becomes a new creature. He doesn't just turn a leaf over. That's not what this is about. This isn't about, you know, I was talking to some folks yesterday uh, after Marvin's service. And I think they even, uh, I don't know if they said that in the service or it was afterwards, but I heard him in the Fellowship Hall and he came up and he said, that's what I always, you know, uh, uh, appreciated about, about Marvin. You know, he was a real person. Even after he got religion, <laughs> he was still a real person. I said, well, he didn't get religion, you know, so I kind of had to clarify with the person. But in their mind, that's all it was. Oh, he just turned over a new leaf. But no, that's not it. This new person, it says he becomes a new creature in Christ. That's why Colossians 2.10 says that we are made complete. See, if Christians can understand that concept of our, who we are in Christ, I think a lot of our problems here on earth would be solved. I see so many Christians struggling day to day, and they just feel like they're being beaten over the head, and they walk around like Eeyore, you know, they got this black cloud over their head, and woe is me, you know, I'm suffering for Jesus. Well, yeah, we're called to suffer for Christ. I'm not going to deny that. You know, the Christian life isn't so some happy-go-lucky, tiptoe-through-the-tulips kind of life. It's a life that has costs involved. The Bible's pretty clear about that. But on the other hand... I want you to understand that you are made complete in Christ when you put your faith and trust in Him. What does that mean? It means that He did that. He performed that act. He transformed you. He drew you out of the domain of darkness and transformed you into the kingdom of light, of righteousness. He did that. You can't do that. None of us can. But if we can just understand as believers who we are in Christ, I think a lot of our day-to-day issues in our spiritual lives would be solved. Because the more we understand about God, that's why, that's why whenever we teach, we want to teach from God's Word. Why? Because it teaches us more about God. It teaches us more about the Savior. It teaches more about His attributes, His power. We're going through a study on Wednesday nights, by the way, Fundamentals of the Faith. And some people have already been through it, maybe a couple times. But you know what? It's good, basic doctrine that we need to be refreshed in. We need to hear it over and over and over again. Because the more we understand about God, the more we understand about his attributes, his characteristics, the way he deals with people, his love, his grace, his mercy, the whole thing. What's that going to do? That's going to encourage us in our day-to-day walk as his followers. So don't ever forget, as Paul writes in Colossians 2.10, that we are made complete in Christ. Peter also adds in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, He says that we have everything, as believers, we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. Sometimes I hear Christians, you know, yeah, just just pray for me, brother, you know, I just need more love. Pray that God will give me more love. And I'll say, I don't think that's a correct prayer. I don't think that's a prayer that God would honor. What? Because the Bible says that, what? The love of Christ is shed abroad in our hearts already. We don't need to pray for more love, beloved. We need to pray 
to kind of use the love that he's already given us to tap into that. So many times we forget what we have in Christ, that Christ is sufficient, that he's made us sufficient to meet our every need. So many times in churches today, we have people that are dealing with issues in their lives, their spiritual lives, their marriages, and their families. And what do they do? They go to the Christian bookstore and they start looking for a workbook. Oh, just get a workbook. You know, if I go through a workbook, then all my, everything will be solved. That's not true. You are sufficient in Christ. I'm not saying that those resources aren't good. We all use those kind of resources in our lives. But don't ever allow those kind of resources to surpass the value of God's own word. Do you understand today in our society there are churches that call themselves Bible churches, Bible-believing churches, that on Sunday morning the pastor is teaching from a book that some guy wrote, not the Bible. Now, yeah, that book may contain some spiritual principles and things like that, but, boy, that's a slippery slope if you start down that path. We always want to have a high view of God, a high view of Scripture. That's why we, we, it takes precedence in our service. The teaching of the Word of God doesn't matter who's doing it. You know, sometimes we have visiting speakers come and they say, well, you know, Pastor, what do I got, you know, 20 minutes? I'm like, 20 minutes? So I'm just getting up, or getting warmed up in 20 minutes. Really? Well, how long do you pray? Well, you know, 50, 60 minutes. Wow, okay. Well, I got a 30-minute thing, so that's fine. But that's what the appetite is. That's what the people are used to. And I'm not saying longer is better. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. You, know, you can sit through a 60-minute sermon and be bored stiff. You know, it just depends on, on what you're being taught. If you're interested in the Word of God, if, if you know, it's, it's being made understandable, made alive, communicated to you. But the life of God dwells in our souls. You're a new person in Christ when we come to Christ. We have everything pertaining to life and godliness, and that's in Christ. Even in Romans 6.18, Paul says this, that we became slaves of righteousness when we come to Christ. We have a new life. See, instead of being slaves to sin, that's what the Bible says, we're dead in our trespasses and sin, we're slaves to sin. When we're saved, we become servants of righteousness. I always laugh at people when they say, oh, you know, I, I believe that, uh, you know, we, we have a, a the, you know, the free will crowd. We have a free will. We have a free will. Yeah, you have a free will to sin. The Bible says that you're a slave to sin. That doesn't sound like a free will to me. When's the last time you heard a slave say, hey, I'm free? No, they're a slave. As unsaved people, we're slaves to sin. Now, I'm not saying we don't have a volition, that we don't believe in Christ. God uses all that together somehow and, and draws us to himself. I understand that. But instead of receiving the wages of sin, now that you're in Christ, what's the wages of sin? The wages of sin is what? Death. Spiritual death. Physical death. All those things. That that's just kind of unfolds. That's the result of sin. Instead of getting that, the Bible says, as far as spiritually goes, we have received the gift of God, which is eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23 tells us that. So we're a new person when we come to Christ. 
But we still have an issue. (laughs) We have a new person, but we have an old problem. There's a problem. Three-letter word problem that we're all very, very acquainted with, whether you're a believer or not. See, as Christians, our new inner nature that God created us to be, our new creature, unfortunately, it's encapsulated and incarcerated, you might say, in this human body, in this flesh. Romans chapter 7, turn over there with me to Romans chapter 7. And Paul speaks of this. Look at verse 14, Romans 7, 14. We'll just highlight some of these verses that Paul points out to us. Obviously, he's talking as a believer. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the what? The flesh, sold under sin, he says. And then he says this in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. Have you ever done something and just scratched your head and said, Man, what did I do that for? Why did I say that to that person? Man, I wish I could take that back. Where where did that come from? That's what he's saying. He said, I don't even understand my own actions sometimes. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing that I hate. How many times, husbands and wives, have you gotten in an argument and afterwards, oh, you know, yeah, I'm sorry, honey, okay, well, let's forgive you. Okay, boy, this, this is never going to happen again. Two weeks later, you're sitting in the same circle and you're crying. You know, oh, I'm sorry. You know, it's never going to happen again. Hey, it's normal. All right? This is a normal outflow of our sinful bodies, of our lives. So I do the very thing I hate. Verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that, that, that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it. What's he say? This isn't an excuse. This is just a reality. No longer I who do it, but what? Sin that dwells where? In me. Sin that dwells in me. We forget sometimes that these bodies that we have are sinful bodies. Yeah, we have a new spirit on the inside. We're a new creature, but we're caught. We're trapped in this fleshly body. Paul was establishing this very important principle that although the believer is a new creation in Christ and has a new life and principles that he lives that life by, that new life isn't able to fully express itself because it's caught in this sinful body. Look at what he says in verse 18, if you have any doubt. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. (laughs) Not one thing that is in my flesh. He even explains it for us. Paul means not just his physical body, but his total human fallenness. Everything about him. His mind, his emotions, his will. Everything suffers under the effects of sin, the fall of mankind. Paul continues, therefore, I desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I want to do the right thing, but I just can't. 
Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see, look at this, verse 23, in my members another war waging against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Then he just cries out, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? See, that's our predicament. That's our problem. We're, we're caught in this body of death. Even though we're a new creation in Christ, our sins have been forgiven, Christ is sufficient to meet our every need, we're still in this body. We haven't had, we don't have our glorified body as of yet. And we won't have it until a future time. And then he says in verse 15, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, So then I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. See, the authority, the dominion of sin is broken in the believer's lives. That's true. The power of sin is broken off us through the power of Christ, but sin is still present. It's still there. And that's important to understand when we start talking about heaven. Because in heaven, we're not going to have that issue. As a believer in Christ, we have the power to do what is right. I don't want anybody walking out of here saying, well, he says, you know, hey, it's sin that does it in me, so I'll just blame it on the devil. Oh, the devil did it. You ever hear that? Oh, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make you do it. You did it because you wanted to do it because you're a sinner. That's what the bottom line is. And it was appealing to you at the time, and you didn't care what anybody else thought. You didn't care what God thought. You thought, hey, I want this, whatever it is. It could be a desire, a passion, greed, whatever. You want it, and you're going to take it. That's how we work as human beings. That's how it worked from the very beginning. You can have anything you want here, folks. Just don't take anything from this tree. Can you imagine someone telling you, I mean, you know what? You can have anything you want. Just don't want this. What's our inclination? Hmm. Wonder why he doesn't want us to want that. Even though he's offering the millions and millions of things over here, I'm kind of inclined to run over to what he doesn't want us to have. That's the human nature. But we have the power to do what is right. Because we have a new heart. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. See, that's why it's so important to understand the Spirit-filled life. The Holy Spirit was given to us as a down payment of our salvation. When we got saved, God said, all right, you know what? I want to give you just a little taste of heaven. Boom. And the Spirit fills us up. That's why the Bible is so clear in Ephesians. It says, don't be drunk with wine. Don't be controlled by some outward influence. But be controlled by the Spirit of God. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Because then we will be doing what's right in God's eyes. Because he'll be doing it through us. 
That's what Paul says. It's not me who lives this life. It's Christ who lives through me. Romans 8.23 says, We ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, having received the down payment of the Spirit and the new life, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Sometimes people say, well, does that mean kind of inward groan, outward groan? Look, I've heard people do both. (laughs) I've heard people literally groan. Man, I just want to go home with the Lord. You know, this body's failing. I I just don't feel good. I just want to go home with the Lord. They're groaning. The whole creation's groaning, the Bible says, to be transformed one day. We groan even within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our soul. No, it says what? Our body. Then we will have a glorified body, a new body. We're going to be talking a little bit about that. See, we have a taste of what redemption is like because God gave us His Holy Spirit as a down payment to be received in the fruit of the Spirit that's operational in our life each and every day. That's what heaven's going to be like just a hundredfold times more. <laughs> because you won't have the draining drawl of sin in your life. You'll be in a place that's perfect. No sin. No tears. Nothing. To take away joy. Well, what will this body be like? What will we be like? See, sin has crippled our souls. It's, it's kind of deflated our spirits at times. It's scarred our thoughts, our wills, our emotions. And I don't know about you, but I yearn for the day when all that is just going to bloom into a fullness and we're going to be completely and entirely saved and redeemed in the presence of the Lord. But we have to be, have a perfected soul. Because, like I said earlier, nothing that is not perfect will be in heaven. Not one thing. You won't have a bad day in heaven. You won't even have a bad second. Everything will be perfect. That's hard for us to comprehend. Well, what's this perfected soul look like? In Revelation 6, 11, it says, There was given to each of them, those who were martyred during the tribulation, a white robe, it says, and we've read this before, and they were told that they should just rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should also be completed. This white robe that they were dressed in symbolizes what? Holiness, right? Purity, perfection. In Revelation seven fourteen, John writes, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, once again, the Bible emphasizes that everything and everyone in heaven will be perfect. See, we have within us the seed of perfection. Our souls are not yet perfect. Our bodies aren't the only, you know, issue here. We have minds, we have wills, we have emotions. And because our souls are not yet perfected, but as soon as you die, as soon as you pass from this life to the next, our soul is instantly perfected as we enter the presence of God. Where does the body go? The body goes to the grave. The soul goes immediately to heaven. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 eight, to be absent from the body is to be what? Home with the Lord, present with the Lord. 
In Philippians 1.23, Paul says that the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for me, it is very much better. Yeah, because he was dealing with all sorts of things. So the moment you die, your body goes back to the earth. Some people say, well, do you think you should be buried, cremated, whatever? I think biblically, from what we see in Scripture, probably burial is is the proper way to go with this. But I also say this, I don't think that in the long run, that's going to matter. I mean, you can burn your body up if you want. It's just in, in the Bible, a lot of times that's looked at as a form of judgment. So some people aren't comfortable with that. But you know what? We live in dire economic times. And you know what? Having a cremation versus a burial and owning a plot and all, I mean, it just makes more rational sense in some people's minds. But don't think for a second that God can't take the particles of that ashes if they were thrown over the, the mountains of the Sierras or out in the ocean or whatever. Don't think that God can't gather them back together. He created them. So when the, the believer dies, his soul is instantly perfected and in God's presence. But the body remains here, back to the grave. All saints who have died are now in heaven without their bodies. They don't have their bodies. Hebrews twelve twenty two says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the myriads of angels, to the general assembly... And it says this, and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. And then it says this, and the spirits of righteous men made perfect. They don't have their bodies yet. Well, what will this perfected soul be like? God will be able to look at your soul and find no imperfection, no sin whatsoever. 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, uh, verses 11 and 13 says, Who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, he says, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. That's Second Corinthians chapter two, verse or First Corinthians chapter two, excuse me, verses eleven thirteen. Paul's saying it's impossible to understand who we are in Christ apart from the Spirit of God. We can't just sit down and figure this out on our own. And we can assume it's impossible to know what it will be like in the future apart from what the Spirit shows us. 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul writes, Things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So there's something in the future that we don't totally get yet. We don't totally understand it. But I want you to understand that nothing, nothing at all unclean will ever enter heaven Well, the perfected soul has different aspects to it. First of all, it has the idea of perfect pleasure. In heaven, when your soul is there, you you will be in perfect pleasure. 
uh, Psalm 16.11 says, In thy presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand there is pleasures forever. See, we live in a society where that's all people are focused on. Right? Hedonistic. They're just focused on pleasure, 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 pleasure. Well, in heaven, there's, you're going to have total pleasure. Complete pleasure. There will be perfect pleasure in God's presence. Secondly, you're going to have perfect knowledge. This is pretty cool. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Then I shall uh, know just or fully just as I am also fully known. We will know everything comprehensively. There will be nothing that you don't know in heaven. That's pretty neat. I'm looking forward to that. Some couple toothpick short down here, you know, so when I get up there, I'll have everything in order. Perfect pleasure, perfect knowledge, also perfect comfort. Who here likes to be uncomfortable? Anybody here? Anybody wake up in the morning and say, man, how can I be uncomfortable? No, we all like to be comforted. When heaven, we're going to have perfect comfort. We'll never experience one uncomfortable moment. In Luke 16, 25, Abraham Abraham says to the, the rich man, remember, Children, child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, the beggar, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. See, I don't want you to forget, as we do this study on heaven, there's an antithesis to this whole thing, and it's called hell. And it's a very real place. And I don't know why, in my own thinking, why anybody would desire to go there. In heaven, there's perfect comfort. In hell... There's perfect agony. Agony unceasing. Heaven is eternal comfort. Praise God. He sent his son because he loved us so much so that we don't have to go to this place called hell. That he provided a way out. He provided a savior on a cross who was perfect in and of himself. And he died in our place. And he says, you know what? I'll take your sin on me. You don't have to pay for you try to pay for your own sin. You just you just put your trust in my work on the cross. And my father will count you as righteous. What a wonderful gift. Not only just perfect comfort but perfect love. 1 Corinthians 13:13, 13, 13, we know this, now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of those is what? Love. I mean everybody likes to be loved. But in heaven, we're going to love everyone perfectly. Anybody here who's married love their spouse perfectly? I don't see any hands. It's impossible. It's impossible. In heaven, we're going to love everyone perfectly. And you know what? The neat thing about heaven is, not only are we going to love everybody perfectly, but we're going to be loved perfectly. Maybe your heart, your life has been scarred with not the right kind of love. Maybe a love that hurts. A love that's painful. You're not going to experience that in heaven. Something to look forward to. John 13, 1 says that Christ loved his disciples to the end, to perfection. And that's exactly how we're going to love and how we will be loved by God and by others. Also, perfect joy. Perfect joy. I mean, you know, you could summarize by saying that heaven is a place of unmixed and unending joy. You like a party? There's going to be a party in heaven. It's just going to be a continuous, joyous event. Joy in this life is always mixed. Even yesterday, I came in here twice for uh, funeral services, and then went over in the fellowship hall, 
And, you know, I couldn't help but kind of draw back from the crowd and look at the different tables and people eating food and talking and laughing. There's joy. But that joy is mixed with sorrow. That's the way life is. Our joys are always dampened by sin and grief and, and, and sorrow. I mean, when you stop and you look at the world and the condition that we live in, and for those of us that have grandkids, man, you know, my heart just breaks. I wonder sometimes, boy, you know, what have they got to look forward to? The economy, all this stuff. There's a commercial out. There's, a, I guess, a grandfather, and he's with his grandson, and he asks his grandfather, how long have you lived in this house? He goes, oh, pretty much all my life. And his grandson goes, boy, I want a house like this when I get older, Grandpa. And the grandfather in the commercial just kind of goes, well, I hope so, I hope so. And I thought, boy, that's, that's so true. You know, we look at the honest condition of our world, and it makes us want to cry. But heaven is a place of unmixed joy. Matthew 25, verses 14 to 18, Jesus is telling a parable there and uh, tells a parable about a man who goes on this journey. We'll be looking at this in the coming weeks, but verse 14, it says, He called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them, and he gained five more talents in the same manner with the one who had received two talents, and he, gave, he gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away, and he dug in the ground, and he hid his master's money. And you say, well, that's being safe. Well, look at what happens. See, the parable here is discussing spiritual privileges. Some men use their spiritual privileges and are blessed, others waste it. Well, one day the master returned to settle accounts with them. It goes on to say in the parable, and the one who had received the five talents came up, and he bought five more talents. He brought the five other ones that he, he had gained. And he said, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to this, he said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things, and I'll put you in charge with many things. Enter into the joy of your master. That's verses 20 and 21. Verse 23, the one who had received the two talents earned two more. He said to his master, or the master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Well, we get down to verse 30, the one who wasted his spiritual privileges, lost basically what he had, says that he was cast into utter darkness. He didn't do anything with what God gave him where there is no joy, but it says this, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know about you, but weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know, I don't like the dentist that much, but I mean, just the idea of weeping and gnashing, and just that, those words don't create a joyful event in my mind. That's what's going to be going on in hell. So, remember, the characteristics of heaven, the dominant characteristics of heaven, are joy. And that basically springs from all the other features about heaven. Heaven's joy is going to be unending. Hell, on the, opposite, on the other end of the spectrum, is just the opposite. It's a place of unmixed and unending pain and torment. But in heaven, our souls, because they're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, will be satisfied eternally. 
and will be perfected forever. A perfected soul also will have a perfected body. See, God made man body and soul. We consist of an inner man and an outer man. Genesis 2.7 tells us that. Therefore, our ultimate perfection demands both the body and the soul to be renewed. We can't just have one without the other. That's not going to be good. We're going to be living in a real place. We need real bodies. We can't just be spirits floating around. We see the promise of the resurrection. See, that's what's so encouraging when a believer dies. Death brings about this separation. Our bodies go to the grave. Our spirits go to the Lord. And that separation continues until the resurrection. And it's, it's important to understand those events. That separation continues. It says, in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of what? Judgment. All right. Today the souls of believers who have died are in heaven. The souls of unbelievers who have died are in hell. But one day, those bodies of the redeemed will be resurrected from the grave and be joined with their spirit, and they'll then have a glorified body. And sometimes we forget that those souls, or the bodies of the ungodly, those who have died without Christ, they'll be raised from the graves, and they'll be joined with their spirits as well. But they will be in a place of torment forever, a place called hell, the opposite of heaven. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, discusses the resurrection of the ungodly. He says in verse uh, 13 14, he says, The sea gave up their death, dead which were in it, and death and Hades, the grave, Revelation 20, 13 to 14, gave up the dead which are in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. See, there will be a resurrection for those outside of Christ onto damnation and judgment. But as Christians, we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. We want that resurrection body. 2 Corinthians 5.1 calls this house that we live in, in the house that we're going to get, this, this body we're going to get, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about the the believer's resurrection. He writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, is what he's saying. That you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. Well, who is their hope? Christ. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, it says, shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. See, after, at this event, at the rapture, 
the event Paul's describing here, first those believers who are dead in Christ will be reunited with their perfected bodies. Then those who are still alive will be caught up, but will be transformed. The rapture of the church when Christ comes back can happen at any time. There's nothing that has to happen before. It's, it's separate from the second coming as we've been studying about. We believe in the imminent return of Christ. It could happen now. So every Christian that's still living on earth when Christ comes will be perfected in a twinkle of an eye. You'll have your perfected body, your glorified body. <clears throat> and we can look forward to the promise of God because we have not only have a glorified body, but we'll also have a glorified spirit, glorified soul. 2 Corinthians 5.1 says that our earthly tent, this body, will be torn down. It's going to be torn down. And we're going to receive a building from God. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. A promise of the resurrection. Also, the body of the resurrection. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, he kind of talks about the, 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 uh, the bodily resurrection says in verses 35 and 36, Some will say, How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? You fool. <laughs> See, that's a severe rebuke. And then he goes on to explain what he's talking about. In verses 36 to 38, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, That which you sow does not come to life until it dies. Have you ever understood this? What do you do when you want to plant a garden? You go out and you buy seeds usually, right? Seeds aren't living, they're dead. That's how they become seeds. And you put this dead thing in the ground, you put a little sunshine and water on it, and all of a sudden you have a living plant. That's incredible. And so Paul is describing this. He says, that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. When you plant a seed, it bears usually no resemblance to what it produces. You don't look at a seed and go, oh, that looks like a tomato. No, it looks like a seed. See, the life principle is in the seed. But if you haven't previously seen the plant it produces, you wouldn't know what kind of seed it's going to, what kind of plant it's going to produce. And the first thing a seed does is it dies, goes into the ground, decomposes, and then it gives life. And that's exactly what's going to happen to our bodies. Our bodies are going to die. They're going to be placed in a grave or an urn or whatever, and they're going to be raised. Just as that seed dies and produces a plant that you could never have seen, or understood what it was going to look like. Our resurrected bodies will be similar to the one that was buried, but also different. Are we going to be ourselves in heaven? Yes. We're going to be ourselves. We're not going to be some spooky angel or something. No. Will we we'll be able to recognize each other in heaven? Yes. But we'll be perfect. The decomposition of the body isn't an obstacle to the resurrection, just as the seed, when it decomposes, isn't an obstacle to bringing forth a new plant. In verse 39, he goes on and he talks about different 
animal bodies. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another flesh of fish. I mean, that kind of makes sense. You eat different kinds of meat, fish, whatever. Made up differently, composed differently. Paul's argument is that God wasn't restricted to what kind of flesh in creation, one kind of flesh in creation. So why would he be restricted to bringing one kind of flesh in the resurrection? I mean, we don't know fully what our bodies are going to be like, but he gives us a little bit of illustrations. In verse 40, he says there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. The Bible says that you can look at creation and see the glory of God, but when you see your glorified body, man, that's, that's really going to be glory. Verse 42, he says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. As one body differs from another, so the resurrection body can differ from what we know. I mean, he may create a, a certain kind of body that preserves our own personality of distinction, and all that, we, we don't know exactly. But we do know some of its characteristics, because the Bible tells us, it says in verse 42 to 44, basically that it's going to be imperishable. The body will never break down. It'll be totally perfect. You're never going to notice a lump growing beneath your skin. There's not going to be any x-ray machines in heaven to check out something that doesn't feel... No, it's not going to happen. It's going to be imperishable. It's also going to be glorious because our bodies will also be glorious with reflecting the glory of God. They're going to be powerful because Paul says that our bodies will be raised in power. We'll have abilities beyond our wildest imaginations in heaven. And I'm just looking forward to you know, flying around heaven. I think we're going to be able to do that. I think somehow our bodies are going to be able to just transport themselves because that's what Jesus did in his resurrected body even while he was here on earth. It's going to be spiritual. Perfect spirit. Verse 45 says, It is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Christ, became a living soul life-giving spirit. Paul contrasts those two. Verse 46, he says, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. As is the heavenly, also those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. We will be Christ-like, beloved. What a wonderful thing. Philippians 3.21 says that God will transform our bodies into conformity with the body of His glory, Christ's glory. That's hard to comprehend. Romans 8.29 says that we are predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. It means exact replication. 1 John 3, 2 says, We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. I don't know about you, but I'm getting excited about going to heaven. (laughs) It's going to be a neat place. It's just going to be a fun place. It's going to be a joyous place. It's going to be an interesting place. 
free from all the sin and the sorrow and the hurt and the physical ailments that we possess down here. The best picture for us of a glorified body is the picture of Christ. He was the one in his glorified body that ascended back to heaven after he rose from the grave. And I want you to understand that after his resurrection, Jesus was able to walk through walls. He was able to appear instantly with certain individuals. And then he'd be gone and he'd appear somewhere else. Can you imagine if you just transport yourself that way? Think of the, the, the time you'd save. I guess time is not an instrument in heaven because it's eternal, right? So that's not going to make any sense. But I love this. The Bible says that he ate with his disciples. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful thing? I mean, think of what a neat thing it is that God created us to enjoy food. I mean, yeah, some people abuse it. Some people eat more than they should. But you know what? There's nothing like getting family together or people you love together around a big table of food and just sitting down and eating. You getting hungry yet? We're going to be eating in heaven. Revelation 22 two says that there will be fruit-bearing trees in heaven. You know, the neat thing about when we eat in heaven, we'll be eating in heaven because it's a joyous thing to do. We won't have to eat in heaven to sustain our, ourselves. And we'll never be able to eat too much. We'll never be able to eat too little. Because everything's going to be perfect. You know, the roast won't get burned in heaven. I don't know if there'll be meat in heaven or not, but who knows. There's going to be fruit. We're going to have a body fit for a full life with God. And we're going to live there forever. In the Old Testament, the Lord compared our glorified bodies to the shining of the moon and the stars. In Daniel 12, 3. And in Revelation 1, 16, Christ's glorified body is described as shining like the sun in its strength. You know, we don't know exactly what our bodies are going to be like. We don't know exactly even what heaven's going to be like. As we looked at last week with Ezekiel, I mean, I don't have a, have a clue what that talked about. You know, you got wheels and you got all sorts of flashes going on. But it's going to be a wonderful place, an incredible place. And our longing as believers to go there should be intense. It should be passionate. We should yearn for it. We should groan for it. We shouldn't get so caught up with the world and its daily activities that somehow, you know, going to heaven is, uh, maybe, you know, maybe not yet. We should want to go right now, if so the Lord wills. That should be our desire. See, but sometimes, you know, we we got to wait till we get older and the body starts to creak a little more. We don't feel good and our health starts to fail. And then all of a sudden, then we kind of have a desire to go to heaven. But see, the youngest person in this room should desire heaven just as much as the oldest person. Because heaven is a place where God dwells. Your Savior's there. Loved ones have gone before you or will be there. Heaven will be a wonderful place. I don't know about you, but I'm definitely looking forward to going there. And I think that we need to remember that aspect. That we'll, we'll have many benefits. Our bodies will have many benefits in heaven. 
But I can't think of any more benefit than being free from the presence of sin, from the from the just the, the overall evilness of this world will be it will be gone. And we'll be in a place of total perfection. Body, soul, mind, spirit, will, everything will be absolutely perfect. You know, and it happens just like that. Split second after your last breath, you're in the presence of your Lord and Savior. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you've given us just a little picture of maybe what we're going to be like in heaven. And I know that many of us are longing to go there simply because we may have loved ones that have preceded us. And we're looking for that reunion, but most of all, we're looking for that reunion with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We desire to be in His presence. We desire to live where He dwells, in a place of perfection, freed from these bodies of sin and torment and physical ailment. We'll be in a place of absolute perfection, and we look forward to that. And the ticket to get there is your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his work on Calvary. And I pray here today that if there's anyone who's just holding out, just waiting, I don't know what they're waiting for, I just pray that you would work in their heart, that you would draw them to yourself. I thought of this last week that I believe that all of us, because God says that our days are numbered, all of us will die pending the Lord's return. But all of us will meet death. And we know what? We're all going to die on time. We're going to die on time. And I started thinking in relation to salvation. Some of the loved ones I pray for to be saved. You know what? There's, there's no one ever who will not be saved on time. Because it's God who saves the human heart. So I pray that that would encourage you to pray for your loved loved ones who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. See, it's not just about them holding out. It's about God doing a work in their heart. And we need to be gracious and give them time to sort these things out and for God to work and to draw them, to show them their need of a Savior. Don't give up hope. Keep praying. Keep living your life for Jesus trusting that he will save their hearts. If you've yet to put your faith and trust in Christ, you can do it this morning. Just cry out to him. Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I know I need a Savior. The Bible says that Jesus is that Savior. He died in my place. Lived, he died, he was raised on the third day. The Word of God says that if I put my faith and trust in that work on Calvary, Not my own works, not my own goodness, but understanding that I have no goodness within me. And I turn from myself and I turn to the Savior. Cry out, be merciful to me, a sinner. He'll save you. And you'll be guaranteed of heaven one day. Not because of who you are, but because of who Christ is. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would just bless our day today. And Lord, as we're dismissed with a song, just... uh, uh, pray that you would continue to work in our fellowship time as well. 
We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.